0: Mend it right away. Old money would leave it just as it is. I know that, I told him. Some of my best customers are old money. I had heard Jim Williams' name mentioned often during the six months I had lived in Savannah. The house was one reason, but there were others. He was a successful dealer in antiques and a restorer of old houses. He had been president of the Telfair Academy, the local art museum. His byline had appeared in Antiques magazine, and the magazine's editor, Wendell Garrett, spoke of him as a genius. He has an extraordinary eye for finding stuff. He trusts his own judgment, and he's willing to take chances. He'll hop on a plane and go anywhere to an auction, to New York, to London, to Geneva. But at heart, he's a southern chauvinist, very much a son of the region, I don't think he cares much for Yankees. Williams had played an active role in the restoration of Savannah's historic district starting in the mid 1950s. Georgia Fawcett, a longtime preservationist, recalled how difficult it had been to get people involved in saving downtown Savannah in those early days. The old part of town had become a slum, she said. The banks had redlined the whole area the great old houses were falling into ruin or being demolished to make way for gas stations and parking lots, and you couldn't borrow any money from the banks to go in and save them. Prostitutes strolled along the streets. Couples with children were afraid to live downtown because it was considered dangerous. Mrs. Fawcett had been a member of a small group of genteel preservationists who had tried since the 1930s to stave off the gas stations and save the houses. One thing we did do, she said, we got the bachelors interested. Jim Williams was one of those bachelors. He bought a row of one-story brick tenements on East Congress Street, restored the whole row, and sold it. Soon he was buying, restoring, and selling dozens of houses all over downtown Savannah. Stories in the newspapers drew attention to his restorations, and his antiques business grew. He started going to Europe once a year on buying trips. He was discovered by society hostesses. The improvement in William's fortunes paralleled the renaissance of Savannah's historic district. By the early 1970s, couples with children came back downtown, and the prostitutes moved over to Montgomery Street. Feeling flush. Williams bought Cabbage Island, one of the sea islands that form an archipelago along the Georgia coast. Cabbage Island was a folly. It covered eighteen hundred acres, all but five of which lay underwater at high tide. He paid five thousand dollars for it in 1966. Old salts at the marina told him he had been duped. Cabbage Island had been on the market for half that sum the year before. $5,000 was a lot of money for a soggy piece of real estate you couldn't even build a house on. But a few months later, phosphates were discovered under several coastal islands, including Cabbage Island. William sold out to Kerr McGee of Oklahoma for $660,000. Several property owners on neighboring islands laughed at him for jumping at the bait too quickly. They held out for a higher price. Weeks later, The state of Georgia outlawed drilling along the coast. The phosphate deal was dead, and, as it turned out, Williams was the only one who had sold in time. His after tax profit was a half million dollars. Now he bought far grander houses. One of them was Armstrong House, a monumental Italian Renaissance palazzo directly across Bull Street from the staid Oglethorpe Club. Armstrong House dwarfed the Oglethorpe Club, and, according to local lore, that was very much its purpose. George Armstrong, a shipping magnate, was said to have built the house in 1919 in response to being blackballed by the club. Although that story was not, in fact, true, Armstrong was a lion of a house. It gloated and glowered and loomed. It even had a curving colonnade that reached out like a giant paw as if to swat the Oglethorpe Club off its high horse across the street. The outrageous magnificence of Armstrong House appealed to Williams and to his growing appetite for grandeur. He was not a member of the Oglethorpe Club. Bachelors from Middle Georgia who sold antiques were not likely to be asked to join, not that it bothered him. He installed his antique shop in Armstrong House for a year, and then sold the house to the law firm of Bowen, Williams, and Levy, and went on about the business of living like, if not being, an aristocrat. He made more frequent buying trips to Europe, in style now, on the QE2, and sent back whole container loads of important paintings and fine English furniture. He bought his first pieces of Fabergé. Williams was gaining stature in Savannah, to the irritation of certain blue bloods. How does it feel to be nouveau riche? he was asked on one occasion. It's the riche that counts, Williams answered. Having said that, he bought Mercer House. Mercer House had been empty for more than ten years. It stood at the west end of Monterey Square, the most elegant of Savannah's many tree shaded squares. It was an Italianate mansion of red brick with tall, arched windows set off by ornate ironwork balconies. It sat back from the street, aloof behind its apron of lawn and its cast-iron fence, not so much looking out on the square as presiding over it. The most recent occupants of the house, the Shriners, had used it as the Ali Temple. They had hung a neon-lit scimitar over the front door, and driven around inside on motorcycles. Williams set about restoring the house to something greater than its original elegance. When work was completed in 1970, he gave a black-tie Christmas party and invited the cream of Savannah society. On the night of his party, every window of Mercer House was ablaze with candlelight. Every room had sparkling chandeliers. Clusters of onlookers stood outside, watching the smart arrivals and staring in amazement at the beautiful house that had been dark for so long. A pianist played cocktail music on the grand piano downstairs. An organist played classical pieces in the ballroom above. Butlers in white jackets circulated with silver trays. Ladies in long gowns moved up and down the spiral stairs in rivers of satin and silk chiffon. Old Savannah was dazzled. The party soon became a permanent fixture on Savannah's social calendar. Williams always scheduled it to occur at the climax of the winter season, the night before the Cotillion's debutante ball. That Friday night became known as the night of Jim Williams' Christmas party. It was the party of the year, and this was no small accomplishment for Williams. You have to understand a sixth-generation Savannian declared. Savannah takes its parties very seriously. This is a town where gentlemen own their own white tie and tails. We don't rent them. So it's quite a tribute to Jim that he has been able to make so prominent a place for himself on the social scene, in spite of not being a native Savannian and being a bachelor. The food at William's parties was always provided by Savannah's most sought-after caterers— Lucille Wright. Mrs. Wright was a light-skinned black woman whose services were so well regarded that Savannah's leading hostesses had been known to change the date of a party if she was not available. Mrs. Wright's touch was easy to spot. Guests would nibble on a cheese straw or eat a marinated shrimp or take a bite of a tomato finger sandwich and smile knowingly. Lucille, they would say, and nothing more needed to be said. Lucille Wright's tomato sandwiches were never soggy. She patted the tomato slices with paper towels first. That was just one of her many secrets. Her clients held her in high esteem. She's a real lady, they often said, and you could tell from the way they said it that they considered that high praise for a black woman. Mrs. Wright admired her patrons in return although she did confide that Savannah's hostesses, even the rich ones, tended to come to her and say, Now, Lucille, I want a nice party, but I don't want to spend too much money. Jim Williams wasn't like that. He likes things done in the grand style, Mrs. Wright said, and he's very liberal with his money. Very, very. He always tells me, Lucille, I'm having two hundred people and I want low country food and plenty of it. I don't want to